0: Trailblazers in research, innovators in technology, and those who simply have a good story all make up the fabric that is George Mason University, Virginia's most diverse and innovative university. I'm John Hollis, and this is the Access to Excellence podcast. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome back to Access to Excellence. I'm John Hollis, hoping you're staying safe through the coronavirus pandemic. Part of the fallout from this pandemic has been the increase in telework. The Washington Post reports about half of all workers are teleworking, including 77% of the federal workforce. There's no doubt that there's a lot of work getting done. But the question is, how much of what is happening is changing the way we think about working from home as opposed to the office? How is it changing how organizations are viewing working from home? And how will that dynamic be played out when things get back to normal? Here to discuss those very points are Matthew Cronin, Associate Professor of Management at George Mason University and co-author of The Craft of Creativity, which looks at how we innovate and describes it as a cognitive process that hinges on changing one's perspective. And also joining us is Kevin Rockman, Professor of Management at Mason and the incoming Editor-in-Chief at Academy of Management Discoveries. Welcome to both of you and I'm glad to have you here on the show. So let's talk telework. Before the pandemic struck, what was the consensus that you both had heard about telework? How was it viewed by businesses, employees alike?
1: Yeah, so just to get us started, John, There's sort of two mindsets with telework, right? There's a set of companies and a set of organizations that have really adopted it and have seen, you know, a lot of advantages for them. They can bring in talent from far and wide or let people work from various locations. They can retain people they wouldn't otherwise be able to retain, and they really sort of lean into it. And there's a lot of other businesses that are either not really willing to sort of let go of those traditional mindsets. And overall, the amount of teleworking has increased slightly, Uh, over the last 10 to 15 years, but not dramatically.
2: I don't think we've ever really had a chance to really look and think about it. We sort of assume that, you know, we know telework happens, we know people are trying to work from home, they don't want to commute less, or they want to commute less if at all possible. But I don't think it really was something that we really, really thought about. That's the thing I noticed. It's something that existed and people had opinions, but they weren't really strong or well-formed opinions, or they might have been strong, but maybe they weren't so well-formed. And I think this is something that really made us look very closely. Whereas before it was just, yeah, this is something, and you know, I'd like to stay home once or twice, and not, not go in to the office.
1: You know, the other thing too, it's, it's also not particularly well-defined. So if I have a 40-hour-a-week job and I, and I go to the office and I'm there between 35 and 40 hours a week, but I also do 10 hours a week of work at home, maybe after my kids go to bed or I'm checking emails first thing in the morning, is that telework? Well, it's kind of telework in that I'm working from home, but now we're thinking more about what are, what are the consequences of that? How can I connect with others? How can I do my work, uh, even though I may not be in the office?
0: Well, Matt, let me ask, before there was this definitive line between working at home, working at work. And now there's kind of a blurred in area. You know, like you, Now you're constantly working from home. How much of a difference does that make, both psychologically and just, just knowing that you had that cutoff when you walked out of the building at whatever time, 5 o'clock or whatever, is, that there was a cutoff and you didn't have your home life and your work life kind of blending in together?
2: Well, I am going to go back to what Kevin said about how it's actually not well-defined. We as faculty and most professionals do a lot of work from home all the time. But for some reason, I think we just sort of incorporate that as, yeah, there's work we do at the office and then there's some work we do at home. Again, this is the modern work, right? You don't have to be at the factory to be doing your knowledge work. But the interesting change for me is that when it is imposed that you must be home, right? There's something interesting about the imposition of of no choice, right? No freedom to sort of have your workday ebb and flow, or, or even have your activities ebb and flow. I think that's actually what's making the difference. Because at least for me, I find myself doing a lot of the routine that I do at home the same way, and yet it feels different. Yet somehow I feel kind of more sluggish, not as adaptable. And and. Frankly, I'm not exactly sure why.
0: Kevin, did you echo the same same thoughts?
1: Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. You know, we have some research on how individuals manage what we call micro transitions. Like I have to transition from being uh, an employee or a boss to a father or a friend uh, or a spouse. And the problem is uh, in this COVID era that the research we have on telework doesn't really mirror what we're experiencing right now, right? Because before... You got to telework usually voluntarily and you had a lot of discretion over how to structure your day, how to structure your work, how to manage those those transitions throughout the day. Now, and this might be part of what Matt's talking about, you may not have that freedom, right? Your kids may bug you. Your parents might call you. You might have to go to the grocery store at a certain time of day or depending on on what's going on in, in your community. And so we're faced with these anxieties and with these constraints that are probably making telework feel worse and more difficult right now than it would be in a normal world.
2: Actually, Kevin, you make a a good point about the constraints. So there's an old theory about jobs and what makes uh, a job meaningful and satisfying. And one of the points is autonomy, right? And so this was a, a real advance because it, you know, this is, this is an old theory. So at the time, said, hey, managers, you shouldn't just tell people what to do. Command and control can be demoralizing. You should give them some autonomy. That will make them take their jobs with more meaning. It's better for them. Now we don't have managers doing that. Now we have our kids who aren't at school doing that for us, right? We have, we have the government doing that. We have like, you know, every, all, everyone else in the world sort of constraining our autonomy. So this is like a strange version of, this, of the resurgence of this old theory about why we need more autonomy in our work.
0: It's kind of funny because you could be sitting in the same room where you are now and wear three, four different hats all yeah. within like 15, 20 minutes. Well, let me ask you this. As, as faculty members who are forced to pivot to online learning in such a short period of time this spring, you're basically teleworking. And education that platform is only going to increase. What were your initial reservations and what's worked for you, what hasn't, by not having that face-to-face interaction?
1: I think for me, my worry exactly.
0: was, was for the students.
1: They're paying to, to be face-to-face. They, they crave face-to-face contact. They want to be on campus. They've put their lives on hold. Uh, to, you know, to come do, do whether it's an undergraduate degree or a graduate degree, uh, my students are graduate students. And I, I feel a lot of empathy towards them because they're not quite getting the experience that they really desired. And, and, they, and they, they were really sad about that. And we had to process a lot of that for the last uh, eight weeks of, of my course, uh, which, which were fully online. In terms of teaching, we can teach pretty well online. We have a lot of technology, we've learned a lot. I think you know, virtual class actually forces a lot of faculty to probably do things they should have done years ago. Right. <laughs> so I think there's gonna be a lot of innovation and creativity that comes out of this in terms of teaching, but you can't replicate what it means to to, you know, to have an in-person, in-depth uh, conversation you know, around a critical topic. And you know, I, I'm, just, I'm just sad about that.
2: Matt? Yeah, I would say this is a perfect example of something I had in my mind but hadn't really looked at until it happened. So I was tended to be resistant to online teaching, just because my preferred mode is being on stage. And so when this happened, I was kind of shocked and and surprised at how well I could manage even the activities that typically I do that way, like these in-person negotiations, one of the classes I teach. And so that was, in a way, good and eye-opening because it did sort of show me, hey, this part is not as bad as you think. And you can incorporate it and advance, you know, sort of the tactics you've been using to teach in a good way. However, it also clearly, for me and for the students, showed that this is not the highest and best use of teaching right? Now, maybe we can find other ways to sort of flip the classroom. This is stuff that people have been talking about, as Kevin says. A lot of these conversations have been going on a long time, but for sure, there is something special about the in-person face-to-face, and we should not see that as a relic of the past. And that was the conversation a lot of people were having before. Oh, face-to-face teaching, who needs it? Well, if you still think that after this COVID time, well, Labor camps for you. That's just my solution.
0: (laughs) (laughs) How much of this will go back to normal? And I say that normal, whatever normal may be. But when we go back to normal, what do you think it'll look like then? Will be some sort of a
2: mixture of the two? All right. Well, I I gotta. Let me start with this one because I'm a systems guy, right? And we believe that structure dictates behavior, right? That we are in, we're in a system that has evolved this way. And while this is a pretty severe shock, the institutions, the habits, the procedures, all of those things still exist. And so they are going to provide a great deal of inertia that are going to bring us back to the way we used to do. Now, I think the thing to do is to be a little bit more thoughtful about that and deliberate. So not to just... Not to either say, okay, it's all different, let's throw that all out, or to say, oh, we know what we're doing now, and let's just move forward, but to sort of say, okay, we just had this really crazy, like, real-life experiment. What are we going to keep, and what are we going to do away with and no longer pursue? We have to be more sort of thoughtful about it, because the system already exists, and it will take time to change
1: it. Just to build from Matt's point, right, because we have this inertia, especially if we go back fairly quickly then without sort of you know leaders or or individuals who are thinking uh, you know about this event in terms of what matt said that it's an experiment let's learn let's adapt they're going to default as to what the what how they ran their businesses and their organizations and their schools beforehand so they're going to look around and they're going to say well we have all these classrooms what do we do with all these classrooms well of course we must we must have all these face-to-face classes we have all these office buildings well what do we do with those well Let's put everybody back in the office buildings, right? They're, they're not going to change uh, unless they're thinking, hey, wait a second, we actually did learn. And there is something we can take, even in the academic setting, pr- there's probably better ways we can utilize classrooms and utilize physical spaces that keeps everybody safe that, that might actually provide better face-to-face contact between professors and students. You can imagine a professor in a certain topic uh, or a certain subject where the professor is or the students are better served learning a lot of the material online, but using what would otherwise be the class time to meet with the professor in small groups. So every student might get three, five, seven dedicated hours just to maybe a small group of two or three. That might be way more valuable to that student and to that class than having 15 sessions with 50 kids in the room or a hundred kids in the room or or whatever the, whatever the, the, you know, the the case may be. That's going to differ though. It's going to differ by professor. It's going to differ by subject. It's going to differ by school. And we should, we should be thinking innovatively as to what's the best way to organize ourselves when we come back.
0: This is obviously uncharted territory for all for everybody. Right. And so as a result, we're all kind of relaxing on hard and fast assumptions we all had about what work should look like, what we should be doing at work. With that said, what are the things that we should be reflecting on and how do we learn from what we're going through?
1: Yeah, no, I'll, I'll go ahead. I think this, I yeah, think this sure. is a really good question, John. And, and this does go in part to what we were talking about in, in terms of how, how are we gonna learn? Now, in the organizational setting, specifically with telework, what organizations should be doing right now is talking to their individual employees who are at home, whether part of the time or all the time, and having them think about and reflect on At what point are they effective? Are they not effective? What's working for them? What's not working for them? Because a lot of what makes telework effective is at the individual level, not necessarily at the group or the company level. So what companies like to do is they like to have policies for everybody. We're we're, we're only going to let everybody work one day a week telework or, or whatever the case may be. Now's a great chance to talk to your employees if you're a middle manager, let's say, and really try to figure out, okay, are we meeting our performance targets? Are we not meeting our performance targets? What's getting in the way? What would, re- what would we really benefit from face-to-face? And use that data to design their systems going forward. It's going to be a real shame if they get to the end of this and they realize, oh, man, we should have been gathering all that data <laughs> as we were going along, even though we were stressed and even
2: though we had so much to do.
0: So this is really a golden opportunity in that aspect.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's it's challenging because, again, I completely agree with what Kevin is saying, that we have to think of what's a more sophisticated way to think about time use than a general global policy, right? And this is actually, again, an idea that's been around in management called the idiosyncratic deal, which tends to get a bad rap because it seems unfair because everybody doesn't get the exact same thing. But the fact is that everyone doesn't want the same thing. And so there is a way, again, we both teach negotiation, and this is the whole point of negotiation, to sort of say, we're going to get different things, and we're both going to be happy with what we get. That's really what you're trying to do. So if we can understand, okay, given face-to-face contact is really great for some things, and maybe unne- unneeded in others, right? what's the right way to, uh, to pull that apart? And even to go further on what Kevin was saying about professors... Some professors really love to talk and interact with the students. I would be one of them, right? Some, not as much. They kind of want to deliver their content in a way that they make sure that the students learn. We shouldn't try and make sure everyone is doing those things in equal proportions, right? We should specialize and coordinate. Oh, my God, imagine that, right? And so (laughs) this is a time to take that idea that we have used in the past and just sort of bring it to the next level with the way we sort of construct work.
0: I read an op-ed recently in the Washington Post that said that teleworking is having a moment and that it shouldn't be because of various factors. I want to go through a few of these factors, and I want you gentlemen to give me either your rebuttal or your endorsement of some of these factors. So I'm going to read through them. Both of you just tell me what you think. First one, online communications can lead to misunderstandings and bad feelings as tone is it is any easy thing to misinterpret. (laughs) <laughs> True. <laughs> have you guys experienced this, Matt? Kevin, you both experienced this?
1: Yeah, and, and the research is pretty clear on this, right? Yeah. When, when, you're, when you're anonymous or, or you have that feeling of, of anonymity, which happens when you uh, communicate via email uh, and other forms of non-face-to-face or non-synchronous uh, communication where we're live with one another, it's, it's much easier to send off uh, flaming emails <laughs> or, or insults and so forth. Even my own research, you know, we put people in the lab and we looked at lying behavior. Uh, we looked at insults. Uh, we looked at people taking advantage of one another. And email was the worst. Once you put people on video, even if they were physically separated, it didn't necessarily make everything as good as face-to-face, but at least it cut down on the line, right? So as you get richer in your communication, people people are treating each other
2: better. So they're basically being held more accountable. Well, Absolutely. but but it's it's also that like, you know, you don't, you can misinterpret, right? We forget right. about all the nonverbal things right that turns out don't even translate through a screen as well as it could in person, right? That that help us interpret messages. So I mean think about it. How many times have you sent a joke in an email and people did not get it? You're like, I totally was joking. And <laughs> you know, I like that that's that's an example of, of this. So
0: Okay. Well moving on, the next one was telework is detrimental to teamwork. Kevin, what do you think about that? You found that to be the case?
1: Yeah. So what I think is detrimental to teamwork are people who don't work well with others. And the problem is that that can happen anywhere, right? So you could have somebody who chooses to email all the time, who never talks to anybody, who goes in his or her shell, and you know what? They could be working down the hall or they could be working at home. So I don't want to conflate too much teamwork with telework because you could have teleworkers who are awesome team members, especially if they've been working together for a while, and the research is pretty clear on this. You could also have teleworkers that are terrible at team members because either they haven't worked together for a while, they have those communication problems we were just talking about, or they would be terrible even if they were in the office.
2: I do have to say that Kevin is sort of ruining my vision of a Siskel and Ebert <laughs> style banter where I'm clearly <laughs> Ebert in this, in this uh, crew, but uh, you know, I, I, do, I think I'm going to have to agree with you on this one too. I mean, there, I guess I'd add though to say when there is a cost you pay when you are working through these kinds of medium and you're not face to face. I mean, it's one of the weird things when we do research meetings, somehow it's better to get us all in a room. And so being really aware that, or if you, let's imagine you had two people who worked really well together, now all of a sudden they have to work apart. They shouldn't necessarily assume that it will be just as smooth. I mean, I don't know if anyone is, but again, just to be aware that there is going to be a cost, and maybe that makes you think differently about the nature of the task, right? Updates can be given this way just fine, conversations sure, but real intense work, eh. And just to add to that, what what I think is missing is,
1: Matt and I are working on a project right now, right? We haven't been in the office for 11 weeks now, and what's missing is, you know, I happen to be walking to our kitchen or I happen to be coming back from the restroom or I happen to be going to talk to somebody else and I have an idea in my head and Matt's in his office and I pop in just for two minutes to talk yeah. about this idea that came to me on the project that we're working on. We don't have any of that.
0: Exactly. And we
1: only have our formal meetings. Right. And formal meetings are great, they're productive, we get things done, but it's slowing down the process because we don't have those random interactions that might take a couple of minutes here and there every other day where we're face-to-face. So I think that's what's really right.
0: missing. Yeah, right? I, I, I agree 100% also. Like, I, I've been a journalist for most of my career before I came to Mason. That creative energy you get from everybody being there, exchanging my ideas face-to-face, it's almost palpable. And I'm sure it's the same as in academia as well.
2: Or even just energy, I mean, again, we so, last time Kevin and I were working on this project, our colleagues are distributed in California and uh, in Cincinnati. But we can sit across from each other while we're on screen with them. And if we want to make snide comments or jokes to each other, you know, while they're on the screen, <laughs> like we do that, you know, and again, that's like, it's not, it's certainly not part of the task, but it does make it more enjoyable and it is part of the energy.
0: The last notion that is somehow it's tougher in these days for employers to monitor their
2: workers. Your take, Matt? No, I, I, again, I got to tee that up for Kevin. I think he's, he, he, he's thought a lot about this kind of stuff.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I mean, it is tougher to monitor. And, and I think a lot of organizations are worried about this. Uh, In fact, there's some companies that are capitalizing on this by selling technology that monitors folks at home where you might have a webcam or you might have something, uh, a program on your computer that basically tracks everything you're doing on your computer and making sure you're working your eight hours a day or nine hours a day or whatever it is, even though you're at home. Personally, I think it's pretty tough to monitor office employees even at the office. They surf the web, they shop online, they do all sorts of stuff that is quote unquote detrimental to performance, even though that that might be very healthy for them to do and they, they might need that break. So I don't think this is particularly the right question to ask is whether or not we can monitor our employees I think the question is, is our employees performing? And for some individuals, this is probably a great time to perform. And for others, it's a real challenge for some of the things that we've talked about. And that's probably true if we're in the office as well.
2: I would say, think: what is the perspective about what one should be doing? Again, what assumptions are we making? And this is where it gets sort of almost absurd. And this is why I laughed. You know, When people sort of start monitoring people, they automatically think, well, I know what the right criteria is to use. What, but in what job is it that people are other than you know with somebody over them you know with like a gun or something where they're constantly not deviating from their their task right I mean <laughs> even when they even when in the jobs where it is like that like a surgeon right there is a still an understanding of sort of the the reality of taking breaks getting relief right there's a whole lot to the ebb and flow of jobs that when we start measuring it with that level of precision, we are really overestimating how well we understand the process. And that to me is just the worst idea you could possibly have. Because that is where, again, that's where systems collapse, because people are so sure they know how it works and they tweak things and they forget about all the other feedback loops that aren't, you know, they're not monitoring and that are getting out of control.
0: So it seems like just listening to you gentlemen, that when you talk about teleworking and looking forward to the future, that there's really no one-size-fits-all. Each company, each organization is finding out what's best for it. Is that about right?
2: Well, there's patterns. I mean, again, marriages work a whole lot of different ways. But surely there are some things that when they're happening in a marriage, it's bad, right? And others, where <laughs> it's good, right? So, again, we don't, if we could take a, a little bit more, like I said, let us look for the patterns and understand that those things increase the probability. They increase what's likely. We're, not, we're in the world of what is likely, not what is possible, because anything is possible.
1: Yeah, and our goal is really to get companies to ask the right questions about about what those, you know, what those sort of baseline principles or values should be. And a lot of companies think the main problem with telework is that teleworkers slack, right? They're not doing their job. That I need to monitor, I need to control, I need to structure. And we've actually seen this in some of the federal agencies. Since the Federal Telework Act was passed about 10 years ago, that their response to this was, okay, we'll let people telework, but we're going to tell them exactly when they can telework. They have to fill out paperwork every day on what they've done, when they've done it. And they're missing the point, right? The point is to make people the most productive and to ask the questions around how can they be the most productive, whether they're in the office or whether they're at home. It's not how, what can I do on, on top of this, what I do in the office to monitor them, to make sure that they're not being lazy and watching TV all day
0: do so you think eventually moving toward a more teleworking situation will create a more enlightened workplace, a more casual workplace, and will it help increase productivity?
1: I think it can, right? And, and it's, it's not, you know, and this goes back to, to uh, some of what Matt was talking about with, with academics. I think we're, we're, you know, coming out of this, we're also going to realize that face-to-face matters, right? And it, it matters a lot. But for the companies on the other side, they're going to realize, hey, a lot of our work can be done remote. And this could cut down on commuting. This is good for, you know, for climate change. This might be more efficient in terms of people using their own time, work-life balance, right? There's a lot of benefits to potentially relaxing some of the rules and figuring out how can we be the most efficient with incorporating some of the aspects of telework that we found are particularly effective without going to a, we, we now could be a virtual organization. I mean, you can could, you could almost imagine, a, you know, a company that tr- basically trades office space money for travel money, right? And and we're, we're not going to have this hundreds of thousands of square feet of space. We're going to let people sort of do what they want, but we're going to spend an extra part of the budget in bringing people together for a re- meaningful time, right? That might, be, that might be a good solution for some
0: companies.
2: You know, so again, listening to Kevin uh, talk about this, you know, reminds me that we build things in our mind, we build ways of working. So the idea of the office, right, which kind of came out of the factory as well, right, where you gather people, and you have them all together, and they're all working on a task. And and then technology changes, but the mindset doesn't. And we really forget how hard it is to change these embedded mindsets. And so this really could be like a true paradigm shift, like a, a real point where we say, all right, We are going to reconceptualize the notion of the organization and its relationship to it, managing people. But that's really, really difficult. And I I can't stress how, how long it will take to do that. It's not just a matter of, Hey, I had this idea and I'm done. (laughs) Right. I like to tell people that the invention that led to the transistor, which is about electric current and how it flows differentially across metals. That was 115 years before the transistor was able to emerge. Right. So there was a lot that had to happen to get from that, you know, the original point A to point B. And I'm hoping we have the sort of patience and foresight to continue to work these things over as we sort of try and reform the, the workplace.
0: Okay. What are some of the things the bureaucratic control and mindsets the organizations love to have that will have to let go, especially the rewarding of effort rather than performance? Really good question.
1: As organizations get bigger in size, they want command and control right? It's too hard to to let everybody, as Matt was talking about earlier, have their own idiosyncratic deal. This drives organizations, most organizations, this drives them nuts. So what they do is, is they invent processes and controls and bureaucratic systems so that individuals don't have that autonomy and, and that freedom. That's what's going to have to go, right? That's what's going to have to relax. In fact, we've seen a lot of organizations like Yahoo take away telework after they had expressed themselves as a cutting-edge company. They did this a couple of years ago. With this change in how we interact and what's safe and what we've learned in terms of efficiency, I think you'll see a lot more companies empowering their middle managers to control their units uh, as they would like to. And if, if they can meet their performance targets and they can reward based on performance rather than effort, right? Effort being how many hours you're working or showing up and performance is you know obviously meeting your performance target. If they can give those middle managers that control to really manage based on performance rather than effort, I think they, they'll they actually become more productive. But that's going to be a very difficult transition for a lot of companies. I have to
2: mention trust, because it's actually been in the background of what a lot of we've been talking about, right? This this notion of, okay, you can go home and tell her, but we're watching everything you do, right? Like that is a that is not a trusting mentality. And right. one of the things that the irony is that When people want to increase trust, they try and increase control so they can be sure that they're not going to be harmed. But in doing that, that actually takes away from the trust. As a matter of fact, one of our incoming colleagues, that was one of her insights in sort of looking at the employee employer relationships, right? You put that spin on it, and it sends things down a a very instrumental path, which ultimately is disruptive. So I kind of feel like if organizations could step back and Really work on the fun foundational. Hey, listen, I'm looking out for you, but you got stuff you got to do for me too, right? Let's build that trust. That makes command and control a lot easier because I don't necessarily worry that everything is, you know, like I, I, if I say, John, I've got a job for you to do, and you know I need you to do it, right? And if you don't, then there has to be consequences. But if you do, Next time I can just say, hey, you got it, go, right? And that, that's how leadership evolves, right? And right. so I think that's truly really what they need to start doing.
1: You know, and, and the important thing right now, and I've been talking to not only my students and colleagues, uh, but also my neighbors about this, is everybody has different constraints right now, right? A, a good friend of mine who lives down the street, works for, works for uh, the military, can telework part of the time, but has four kids at home. Well, <laughs> he can only work like four to six in the morning, And 10 o'clock at night till, you know, one o'clock in the morning. And so he's lucky because his boss has said, no, you have to get this job done and you can work whenever you want. And that's very freeing because now he can structure his day so that he's not working when the kids are working. And a lot of companies, they're not doing that, right? They're saying, I don't care about your kids. Your job is an eight to five job and you have to be logged on eight to five. And you're basically encouraging people to lie. Yeah. Right? And, and burnout. <laughs> right? Yeah. So it's either burnout. You're either neglecting your kids. You're not helping them with, with their school if if that's what you're facing, or you're just basically inviting them to, to lie about what they're doing, wow. how they're spending their time, right? So right. why would organizations do that? Right? That doesn't doesn't make a doesn't make a lot of sense.
0: Well, last question I'm gonna put you both of you guys on the spot with prediction. Workers mm-hmm. will work from home how many days a week after we get back to normal?
1: My prediction is that the office is is going to become a Tuesday through Thursday event mon-, mon you'll you'll have Monday Mondays and Fridays is going to be telework days.
2: that's yeah. good I, I honestly like I was like I because I was like I'm not gonna I don't think i'm gonna I don't think I'm gonna predict but I do think that that makes a lot of sense for jobs that are more structured. I actually wonder about if they might I really don't like predictions, but I will tell you what I might like to see. given the idea of reimagining how the office exists like the 24-hour workday really right so we already have to sort of be up for meetings you know in global companies with people who are far away and in different time zones and why not allow people to say hey you know what with my kids I would like to work from 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. and then I'll take myself a nice long nap during their schooling right or or for somebody to just say hey I'm young and I'm full of energy and I like to stay up uh, you know like late in the evening and you know go to you know wake up with like we could use that so that the office is there, but it's not. So it's got more fluidity in the hours in which people work. I think that's that'll be my prediction.
0: Well, gentlemen, thank you very, very much for being here. That's going to do it for us here at Access to Excellence. I want to thank Mech Cronin and Kevin Rockman for joining us. I'm John Hollis, saying thank you. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time. If you like what you heard on this podcast, or even if you didn't, or if you have a suggestion of what you'd like to hear, let us know at dchrisdodd at gmu.edu. That's d-c-r-i-s-t-o-d at gmu.edu.